Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Tricky Kid Radio. I'm your host, Roy Turner. Once again, joined by my best, oldest, longest, oldest friend, Chris Todd. What up, home team? Hey, man. What we're going to be doing this week is uh, we're going to be doing part, bringing you part two of our Motley Crue series. Um, if you heard part one, you know that Chris and I have been friends for, for almost 30 years. Uh, we actually met and bonded over Motley Crue. And as you know, unfortunately, Motley had to uh, kind of call it a call it a career at the end of last year. And what we thought we would do is, uh, since they just came out with this movie called Motley Crue, The End, that documented uh, the final tour, or actually the final shows, actually, it had like a very select uh, theater release. We thought that we would break it down for you, uh, talk about, you know, you know, the present, but also take you take you back, take you all the way through it. Uh, if you listen to part one, we started with, with the incomparable Too Fast for Love. That's right. Took it all the way back to the beginning. And right. then, yeah, and then, dra- and then we took them all the way through the 80s. The, one of the most decadent uh, decades in, in history, uh, but certainly for, you know, one of the most wildest, uh, hard party and crazy bands ever. So, but, but it didn't, it, the story did not end there. So we're going to pick back up starting with the, with the 90s. Uh, and uh, and bring it to the future here. Uh, so we, you and I saw the movie, and we're going to talk about this course at the end because we're going to kind of going to go in chronological order here. But uh, again, they came out with a theatrical release called Motley Crue: The End, which was right. documenting not only the final tour but those final three dates that they did at Staples Center in Los Angeles, ending on New Year's Eve, back where it all kind of began. And they did a one-day release in the theater, and uh, you and I went and saw it, which kind of gave us the inspiration to do this. Right. It was actually, this was your idea, actually, and I, and, I, and I thank you so much for that. Part one was a blast. If you haven't heard it, you got to go check it out. So, again, talk to me a little bit about that. When you left the theater, when we were, when where were you and I were leaving that day, what were you thinking about? Well, I, I know that we were driving back from watching that, and you know, I, I think that we were both agreed that, hey, this – this really, this is it. Yeah. You know, it really sunk in. Yeah. You know, cause we, you know, again, we said, we said, I saw them twice. You saw them three times on, on the, the tour. tour. Yeah. But you know, it, it, it didn't seem like closure. I mean, yeah, you know, I, I we're watching them and yeah, this is it. And we did, we, we celebrated, we, we hugged watching, yeah. you know, watching them play home sweet. Yes, home. of course. Of course. And it was, really, my favorite memories. Yeah, it was really emotional, but, it didn't quite hit me as hard as it did watching the end, the documentary. And I felt I felt like something was interesting to that because I felt the exact same way without us actually communicating that. It wasn't until because when you see it in concert, there they are. That that's right. Vince, Tommy, and Nick, and the whole yep. you know alive and well right in front of you. How can this? This isn't over. This is this is awesome. You know. And so, it might be because that was the last show. Yeah. And so I think that's what that 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 was the last show we were watching the, the last show being recorded uh, right know, right here in front of us and so and in, and I can't wait to kind of get into kind of further delve into that movie because it definitely had a, had a dark tone to it it was I think it was meant to be a celebration as as well as a finality and that duality is kind of a hard thing to kind of digest especially when something right. is this personal and close to you but it seemed more darker. Yeah, it they it was very honest. Yeah, and that, and that was surprising. Very, the, very. you know, the, it was very candid, very open, and you know, really, it was you know a lot of stuff 
that we, you know, again, they had the interviews off camp, you uh-huh. know, uh, the, 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 in between the, the, the set. Right. Um, you know, they had that, that personal time, the, the you know, the interviews between right. the band members and separately, of course. <laughs> yes. And, and the, it, again, to, to, to my point here, you know, being separate, uh, very open and being very brutally honest about, yeah. about their current relationship. It seemed like that the, they didn't have much of a choice. Like I, I can't, and if you've seen all the interviews since, there was a lot more honesty has come out since <laughs> then. Um, whereas, like, they can't wait to, like, it was sad. And they're celebrating 35 years as a band. I mean, that's, Tommy was 19 when when uh, when Too Fast for Love came out. This is his entire life. So what you're saying goodbye to them, well, how many times you're tired of hearing, you know, or playing these songs or tired of these guys and around you. What you're really saying goodbye to is your own life, in a sense. It's like your own your own thing. So there's a sadness there that's met with this probably a relief at the same time that you're just no matter what, no matter how sad it is, it's not sadder than the relief that I feel that it's over. That's a that's a a weird thing to deal with, and that's a weird thing to convey on camera. Yeah, it, it is, and understandably so, because, you know, again, they've played these songs yeah. hundreds of times. Right. Thousands, um, probably, yeah. But, again, you know, to the fan, to us, and, and this is the contrast between our, you know, uh, our episode one, where we're talking about the beginning, about right. about the gang, uh, feeling a part of, a, of this family, the, the, these, these four individuals that you had a sense that they will be together for, they, they would they would take a bullet for each other for that's the rest right. of their lives. That's right. And that's what you want to believe. It, absolutely. But, you know, watching the end, yeah. that's where you're talking about, that contrast, the, the sadness, uh, knowing that, you know, wow, this is the end because it's really brutally honest. And, yeah. and you really you understand where the relationship is. Absolutely. And like you said, like how what we're trying, we're trying to, to convey was but this was like not just a band. This was a gang. And again, this is our history. Like again, like like at Slender Part One, you can read and learn all about Motley Crue anywhere that you that you're choosing. What we're going to bring you uh, in part what we did in Part One, and we're going to bring you in Part Two is is our history. You're going to hear about two long time great friend, best friends that really lived this, that really loved this in the way that that their friendship. You know what I'm saying? Like they're a gang. You and I were a gang, and we joined the two gangs joined together. Right? Does that, does that make sense? It does. Okay. And so, but what we're going to start with was that after, uh, you know, in the early '90s, because I like your point, what you're saying about the whole gang mentality thing, because you want to believe that these guys would take a bullet for each other, like you and I would. Right. Okay. And I still believe, no matter how dark the movie was, I still feel like that they would, you know, as honest as they were, as relieved that they were glad in a sense that this was ending and moving on to something else. You don't spend 35 years with somebody. And it's not just because I want it to be that way. You know, I wish they were on better terms. Right. I wish that, that it, it, it it didn't end because, well, you know, I want to pursue this or we're too old and we were unable to do this anymore. No, it was like, it ended because these four guys can't stand each other anymore. I mean, right. they're, you know, and I, and I hate that, but I still think that when you spend 35 years of your life 
and something in the and what being with these other guys brought to your life that you have there is an ingrained gratitude that will never go away no matter how much they annoy you that's right and i agree i think the different the difference here is that you know again Looking back to the beginning, we were when we were young, when we saw this the, the, these four as you know they will be together forever. They they will have each other's back. We didn't look at it as you have to look at it in adult eyes and seeing that yeah. you know not only are they friends, <laughs> but you have to look at it. This is a business. This is a business, right? These are young kids growing up together. And having to understand that this is their this is their job. That's right. That's right. You have the business element behind it, and we all know that you know uh, it's one thing to be friends, but when you're friends and then you're actually working together, that's right. And you have business obligations, and you have the ego. Right. There's so much that is against you. Yes. And, and that's there, right. There's so many trials and tribulations. Uh, that's you know that that force. It's pushing. Well, that's why they say it ain't show friends. That's it's right. it's show is. <laughs> right. And this is the perfect <laughs> subject right here. Exactly. Yes. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with, I said, with uh, with the 90s since we ended off with the 80s. And what we're going to, what I want to want to do is paint this kind of broad stroke picture here because they were on top. Uh, we talked about this a little before, before we went on air was, was that Girls, girls, girls. I'm sorry, Doctor Philgood. Doctor Philgood. That's where we last left off. Right. Came out in '89, but the successes that they were enjoying from it lasted for two years, and that was even prolonged when they came out with the greatest hits album called "Decade of Decadence." Right. Okay. Doctor Feelgood. Can we not agree? That was huge. Oh, it was. It, so what I'm trying to say was, was in a just world, you know the criminally overlooked too fast for love the incomparable too right. fast for love should be motley's most successful album okay and by the end of the 80s you would think okay well they're kind of winding down you know they've been doing this for a while because we were so young from that perspective right. dr feelgood is their most commercial successful record and what allowed them to still be a band for another 20 years right do you understand like yeah. or, or almost twenty years, I would say, like for the next sixteen years, because most albums, again, barely can get a third single. If you get two good singles out of an album, that's a good run. I think there were like seven. I talked about this right. in part one. I think there were like six or seven. And if you consider the greatest hits album, Decade of Decadence, which of course there's always a couple of new tracks to get you to buy the record, there was a couple that were just left over from the Doctor Feelgood mm-hmm. sessions. One of them being Primal Scream, which was also a major hit and still a staple at their live shows that they even played on the last tour. It's a great song. It holds up well. It does. It does. Okay. So, so that's what I want to think about this. Was it okay? So by 1991, of course, this was the year of Nirvana, and and uh, we were still in high school. Yes, the grunge years. The grunge years. And you've heard this a thousand times about how Kurt Cobain came along like a freaking lawnmower and ended the <laughs> and, and, and just weed whacked the shit out of all the you know suddenly you know take that twisted sister and you know and goodbye rat and and all that which is you know for, for people that were actually were there um, that is greatly j- exaggerated uh, right. if you maybe we'll do an episode one day and I will explain to you how. 
Guns N' Roses' appetite for destruction and, and Nirvana's Nevermind have way more in common than they do uh, opposite-wise. I completely agree with that. But, but again, having Motley come off what should have been, you know, like, hey, it's the 90s, their most successful period, okay? The people that were listening to all of that like, oh my God, you know, it's Nirvana in order to, to be a business and to mm-hmm. succeed and to prolong and kind of keep it going. Uh, it was the members of Motley Crue. Right. And I guess Vince was so much of a pain in the ass uh, or whatever. And, and because they just made all, the, you know, they had made more money than they ever made before in their entire life. They thought Key point. Yeah. I think the, this is at the peak of the excess. Uh-huh. Of the, the fame, the money. That's right. That's right. And then, you know, everyone's, you know, here comes like, again, you know, the grunge years, you know, that 91 to, you know, to, to 94 period. Uh, and not just that, but, you know, Nine Inch Nails, it was the whole different thing where suddenly, instantly, for, for young people, I don't know of, of another time where instantly things that were awesome just three years prior – I guess you could also could say like there's something about whenever there's like a new decade, people want something new. Yeah, that, and that's a good point. And you're like you said, we could have a separate show for this. You know, you have you have the albums, and, and you you touched on Appetite for Destruction, but then you also uh, you mentioned Nine Inch Nails, right? Pretty Hate Machine, yeah. Um, you know, uh, Jane's Addiction, uh, you know, there, there are these albums, these bands that are on a evolutionary scale. Sure, sure. You know, kind of like kill the dinosaur. Right. You know, so that, that's a very good point. You're and, and that's something, something that's always happened. I mean, like, again, in the early 1980s, you know, the Eagles Hotel California came out in the late 70s. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Well... By 1981, 82, it was the Knack and New Wave and Diva right. because we because this is we're reclaiming our decade, okay. So 90s people were now claiming their decade, and so instantly all this Rat Motley Crue Poison stuff was the Roller Brothers decade. This is ours, and That's we. That's a good point. I never thought about it. That you know way. what I'm saying? So. Yeah. It's not that Nevermind isn't a great album, but if Nevermind had come out in 98, (laughs) big, different story there, you know, so it owes itself to to that as well. But again, whole other topic, but it's important to bring it up because it led to some very, very unwise decisions. Instead of listening to that kind of hysteria and not wanting to lose all that money. That they had, they had enjoyed. And I guess also, they, you know, their, their egos were kind of stroked because they were like, hey, we just came off this biggest thing. We can do whatever we want. And then there's that back and forth. You couldn't talk about the history of Motley Crue without was Vince fired or did he quit? <laughs> Vince claims he was fired because he never wanted to leave the band. Nikki claims that he quit. Uh, well, yeah, and you also have to talk about it again, going back to the excess and the fame and doing their, and the personalities here. Right. Um, you know, Vince Neil, I think Vince Neil at this time, he was getting heavily into, uh, racing. Yeah, right. Because he had, so he, yeah, yeah, yeah. he wasn't wanting to have a hobby. So it's almost like they didn't have time for their primary job. 
at this point. You know, they well, that's the what tour. money allows them right. to do. Right. Suddenly, we're, we're we're we all have our own. Thanks to Doctor Feelgood, we have our own buses and our own. Right. And now I've got money, and I can pursue other different things. You know, I'm not really my whatever that happens. My my head and my heart aren't in this anymore. And coming to this is now we've all grown apart. Now being around this is feels like coming to a, to, to a job every single day. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure they it was a well needed break. Yeah. Okay. You know, after the success of Doctor Feelgood, right. um, you know, again they they I'm sure they wanted to take a break, take some time off. But I think in that time that they took off after the success of Doctor Feelgood, so much had happened. Right. And they started saying, you know, again, the personalities, uh, wanting to have their own ideas, um, being influenced by different types of musical styles. Right. But I I really think that what drove that engine was Nikki Six is need to be relevant, to be popular. It was ego driven relevancy business. And so suddenly he doesn't want to be the... uh, you know, he always kind of had that edge. I mean, what, what made Motley stand above everybody in the early 80s was because he wasn't just doing the Hollywood Sunset Strip stuff. He was doing – I mean, like we talked about this before. Too Fast for Love is a very punkish record, uh, and it's kind of got that New York Dolls um, – Just there's, there's something very dangerous about it. Right. Do you see what I'm saying? Right. So I think that there was he, – he never really fit in with just that – you know, that kind of like, I don't want to say dumb, but, you know, there's a dumb element. By by the time the hair thing <laughs> got to, to, to Warrant and, and all, and no disrespect to any of those bands, but by the time it got to Lord Tracy and Trickster and all that, it was low-hanging fruit. Yeah, well, yeah. Okay. That's a good point. And so, and it could have, in some, and for some of those bands, it could have even have began as such. So I think that for him, I don't need Vince Neil anymore. He, he He's going to make us... Because here's a guy that would be happy. He's just a simple guy. Here's a guy that would be happy being a part of that. Like while Nikki was, you know, quoting Hunter S. Thompson and hanging out yeah. with Trent Reznor or whatever, or right. trying to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. Vince is a very simple guy. He right. would be happy hanging out with Ted Nugent and not yep. and wearing and wearing the same, uh, you know. That's a good point. Yeah, I don't think it 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 mattered too much to Vince, you know, to trying to be relevant, like you said. You know, again, he had started his racing uh, team, uh, his own venture into that. Um, so, I, 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 yeah, I don't think he really cared. And and you're right. Looking at the climate of music at that time, I mean, you're talking about '92, right? Uh, you know, uh, right, right. Raging Against the Machine, uh, uh, right, right. You know, Nirvana, uh, right. You know, you had all of these powerful bands that were so different they you know again in the process of the hair metal being killed off right well but again like i said you know revisionists will tell you that again that cobain came out and purposely picked them all off one by one with a fucking bb gun and and the reality is it was just everything was changing okay people were, were claiming their decade Okay, and now these bands were left scrambling how to make it happen. Right, um, and if it meant that Vince Neil had to be a casualty, I think for Nikki it was it was a, a great opportunity to get rid of Vince anyway. I think that by this point he was he was he'd had it. Right, uh, he wasn't digging his forward thinking, his lack. And admittedly, Vince has always said that he's not an ambitious person. He would have been happy 
working some surfboard shop off of the beach where you could mm -hmm. be around the water and the girls and have a good time. So, you know, mo money, mo problems. Okay. Right. So what we're leading up to is that in spite of it's, this is kind of a theme with Motley. It seems like that everything's kind of gone in reverse off the back of their most successful record. Dr. Feel good followed up with decade of decadence. Okay. Which you said something amazingly funny here before we, we, we went on the air. Cause I was like, you know, you know, when you talk about when we, when we started this band, all we needed needed was a lap. Like they've been a band for nine years, <laughs> but because of the hard partying, right? Nine years, really, to them, that was dog years. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was dog years was. because they were like, you know, saying. So I think that's why I've got money. Times are changing. We got to stay afloat. So, uh, which led to a very ill-advised, depending on who you're, who you're, who you're asking where Motley Crue followed up their most successful commercial record with a Vince Neil list. And it's always difficult. I don't care who it is replacing the front man. The front man. Because right. Vince was more than just a singer. He was a front man. He was the only, he was the contrast of the blonde to the brunettes in the band. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, there wasn't any faceless member of this band, but Vince is front and center. Vince is, you know, Vince Neil. He's notorious. Uh, he's probably the person that you probably might uh, my fear the most uh, in terms of uh, just, I don't know. I mean, they all kind of seem like they could probably could like, you know, kick your ass and like eat it after. But um, anyway, so to follow all that up, I get with a hit single with Primal Scream and everything else and their response to um, the whole Nirvana thing was, was to come out with a self, it, it was smart at least to call the record self-titled. Because basically what they're saying smart. is, is it, this is Motley Crue. This is like a, yeah. And you can only do the self-titled thing once. So this was kind of like, and most people kind of do that on their first album. So that was the statement that we're a new band and this is our first album. This is not the follow-up to Dr. Feelgood. This is a new band and this is our first album. Now, what are your memories of that at the time? And did you ever hear that album ever? No. I'm going to be honest with you. No, I, I didn't. I remember the single Hooligans Holiday. Okay. I, I think they came out with a video. Right. And, and what did you think when you saw that video? I, again, <laughs> you know, and again, you know, I, I'm romantic, you know, and again, when you, you remove the leader of your gang, our gang, our gang. And again, keep it at this at this point, you know, Dr. Feelgood, as great of an album as that was, you know, and we talked about this. To me, again, we were dabbling in the heavier stuff. Right, right, we, sure. And and the Nirvana stuff too. I mean, I mean I'm a fan right. of all that Absolutely. stuff too. We, we you know, we were getting into Nirvana Bleach. Uh, we were starting to get into Fugazi. Right. Uh, you know, so we were we had already branched off. Um, so, you know, again by Dr. Feelgood. Dr. Feelgood was a little tame for me. Sure. So that was at, that was the moment when I started to kind of separate myself from, sure. from, from the gang, so to speak. Uh, but when I saw that uh, Vince Neil was gone and John Karabi was in, to me, that was a nail in the coffin. Yeah. We're, I was like, this, this further confirms it, this chapter is over. Yes. I, recognizing that they were a huge part of, of, of our youth, of, you know, of our friendship. That's right. That's right. To me, that was the end because, and again, and, and you can, you know, 
look at other bands, you know, look at, I, I guess you could look at Anthrax, you know, right, when right. they got rid of Belladonna and they brought in Bush. But the right. thing is, Karabi, and, and I think... The, Very he, similar. It happened, right. the same, happened the same year, right. by the way. And I think that Karabi, he was at the Scream. So he had, you know, he had some skills. The, the Scream. Let me confuse with my friends, Pete and Franz Stahl from the band, from DC's Scream. Scream. Right. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, I mean, he had some skins in the game and, you know, he, he had some street cred. Um, it was good. I, I, I listened to the, the, the single. It was good. Okay. Um, but did I listen to the album in its entirety at the time? Did I go out and purchase it? No. Okay. And I felt the exact same way because here, here was my deal. Again, I'm not a revisionist. I'm not going to sit here and claim like, man, I still gave it, gave it, gave it the old college try. Uh, I was still a member of the gang. Okay. I is no, it is no matter what we were getting into, but this new stuff like Fugazi and we're exploring and, you know, we're, we're not only claiming, you know, cause you know, we can claim the eighties, but since of how old we were, we also get to claim the nineties. You, right. see, you see what I'm saying? So it's like, we're like, we Isn't were that great. Yeah. That's I, like, <laughs> that's a thing. I know because for me, like I said, the, and for me, but also here's something else that the hip hop that was happening, like as, as much as people were so super into Nirvana and Soundgarden and all that around that time. And, and I very much was too. Yes. I was more into the hip hop that was happening. That's in the early good, 90s. Well, yeah. We, we can't, we cannot. That's right. We have to discuss that. That. Okay. I would turn off, I would, I would watch Headbangers Ball and then I would watch Yo MTV Raps. Right. So as much as I was, so, so there was a lot that was, that was replacing my time. That's such a good point. For Motley. Does that make You're sense? Right. Because when you think about it, it our musical adventures, you know, in the eighties, it was very limited. I mean, I know that we, you know, again, we had this, we had the hair bands. Right. Um, well, exposure was limited. Okay, that's we're, a good we're, point. we were poor kids who lived in the suburbs, pre-internet. I mean, that's it, it, right. We were that's a good point. Mail order kings. I, I remember you and I used to go to whenever we were twelve and thirteen. We would go to the store, and our exposure was the, was the print ad or the print magazines. Mm-hmm. And I can remember, like, I was the mail order king. If you remember, and so were you. I would see a picture of a band, and See how important out there bands help, especially back then, how important aesthetics were. Uh, was that I remember buying Venom's first album and mail ordering it. Do you remember this? I remember right. getting black metal because it looked like the most scariest shit I'd ever seen in my life. And I didn't even know what it sounded like, but I know what it looked like. And if it sounded like it looked, I, it, I'm all in. That's you right. Know? Yeah. And I think we can also uh, thank uh, the band Metallica for, you know, Again, for half the T-shirts that James Hetfield wore, yeah. if he wore that band, then, I had to go out and purchase that band's that album. That was the, that was right. all the validation that I needed. If they, if right. they, if, <laughs> if they're recovering a song, and uh, you know, right. uh, but you didn't have that with the the, the, the the '80s metal bands. You know, you, that's right. They weren't going to be wearing, you know, a. Nikki Six wasn't going to be wearing a rat T-shirt. No, you know? of course, not. no, of course not. <laughs> Absolutely not. He was not going to, to claim that as his own. Right. But so that's why that's important to think about is that there's a lot more elements at, at play there. Good point. And but really think about this, okay? If they're trying to say the, the, to take their own claim, all right? Like a, and a lot of bands try this too. Like I said, we mentioned Anthrax, which we'll get back to in a second. But. Um, if they can't hold on in 1994 to two lifelong 
I, I had Motley Crue in my veins 18 months before that record came out. Yep. Still, okay, right. all right? So if they're not going to be able to hold on to two people that consider themselves to be not only members of the gang, but presidents of the local chapter of the game, right? Then what? What hope could they have had? Yeah, and that's a good question. What? What? Who did they think they were going to? What fans were they going to gain? Were they going to maintain their their loyal fans? From well, the, well, that, that's why the, there's an argument that, that I've heard a lot that says they probably should have called it something else. Okay, they probably should have started. If this is going to be truly a new band. Then you, you guys, because it's not a Motley record, and I'm not saying the record is bad. I've heard the album, and it's actually a decent record. And something else I'll tell you that you've heard this a lot, and I, we talked about this earlier, was that when you hear interviews and they, they mention, obviously not Vince, of course, what is your favorite Motley record you ever made? They all say the self-titled record with John Karabi. Now, I used to think that it was designed just to right. to get uh, at Vince. surprising, yeah. Because I mentioned before, like, Whenever he was, I mean, these guys are so insensitive that, like, whenever he had that that horrible DWI thing where, where the the drummer for Hanoi Rocks, his passenger and, the, and his car got killed, and he went to jail and was looking at going to prison for seven years, and and every dime he made on the Shout of the Devil tour went to his defense, and basically right. he bought his way out of jail. Okay, yep. And so what, what what did they do instead of saying, you know, hey man, we're so sorry you went through that? They'd be like. Because he couldn't drink for like right. a long time as part of his the condition of his release, they'd be like, "Hey Vince, could you won't you make me a cocktail over there? <laughs> hey Vince, can you get me a beer? You know." Oh, that's terrible. Uh, so and I, I, yeah, and, and I think a lot of people did kind of turn their back on Vince uh, during that time. You know, I, and I think that's why it makes it was really heavy for him. It was, and I think that's why for the band. But think about this: I think that's why. Okay, if you know the argument, like was he fired or did he quit? I think it's like, well, who cares at this point? But I think the reason why it's still important to him, okay, was because he was really looked at as kind of like the scapegoat. Like, we had some dead weight here. And much like how, you know, the, the punk of the early 80s and the new wave killed off the, the arena rock mm-hmm. and 70s dinosaurs, what basically they were saying was, was that I know what you're thinking. Motley Crue is a dinosaur. And what we're here to tell you is, is that we're not dinosaurs. Right. He is. He is. Okay. So and, he was the sacrificial lamb, right. so to speak. Uh, in yeah. a sense. Okay. So I think that's why it's important to him to be like, and and he and he probably was. I mean, they yeah. probably weren't wrong about that. Maybe their intentions were, hey, you know. Uh, and I think I think that was the whole thing. Was was it was like we've got enough money now. We can do whatever we want. We want to keep this thing afloat. Here's a reason to get rid of him mm-hmm. and say, look, we're still because a lot of people forget, and we need to because we were so young at the time. But I said, Doctor Phil, Vince and, and Tommy were still in their twenties. It's it's, it's unfathomable to, <laughs> to think that. But uh, but moving on, uh, I, I I do want you to listen to it. Um, the reason why I'm not going to play it anything on it today is because not that I'm sour on the album. I just had this whole thing is like, if it, if it ain't those four guys, right. it ain't going to be played on this show. <laughs> and, and, but, but I, I do encourage that. people that if you want to explore the history of Motley Crue, uh, cause again, it's a, it's a cool record. It's just not a Motley record. You, you know, you, you know what I'm saying? Right. Like, and it was done with strings attached. Okay. But I, but we are going to get into some music um, right after, so we can go ahead and keep the lights on here. We're going to go ahead and do our, our sponsorship ads here. Uh, uh, 
Chris, you you have a cell phone. I have a yeah. cell phone. Everybody has a cell phone. Uh, but what you're probably dealing with, and I know I've dealt with it big time in the past, of course, is a, an enormous monthly bill. Okay, got that right. And so, and a lot of times you think to yourself, well, if I go with another company or go somewhere else, I'm going to have to compromise, and I can't have an iPhone, or uh, I'm going to only get a, a you know be able to talk after 9 p.m. during the week or you know, all those old things. And, and people have kind of kind of been traumatized by those things. And that's why they are, you know, kind of apprehensive about switching or most are under some silly contract. Well, there's a new company called Cricket Wireless. And what's great about Cricket is that they're not, they're not the poor man's thing and not to diss anybody else, but there are some companies out there that are basically for those uh, that can't, do anything else. And Cricket is not one of those. First of all, there's no contract. You can have any phone that you want. And you guys in, in the in the the plan start at like forty dollars a month. That's uh a really good deal. I uh got acquainted with Cricket Wireless at, during this year's WrestleMania. I was able I was uh there as a guest uh and uh as a uh, ambassador for for them uh throughout this this major event. They're major sponsors of events all over the world uh, for the BET Awards this year. Uh, so not only that, so you're also kind of thinking like, well, who am I giving my money to? Well, you're giving your money to a great, great company. There's no contract. You can keep your phone, get a new one, whatever you want to do, and you can pay just like 40 or 50 bucks a month, which for, for the average person, that will probably will keep them afloat. So check out Cricket Wireless. Go on to the interwebs and just type in Cricket Wireless. Uh, you might have probably have been seeing the stores popping up around in your local neighborhood. Visit one today. Check out Cricket Wireless. If you're tired of paying an insanely large phone bill, uh, there's a great program they have right now called uh, called Cena Surprise. Speaking of wrestling, where uh, John, where they're interviewing these people, these these wrestling fans at the Cricket Wireless stores, asking them about John Cena, and then he comes bursting through the door. They're not knowing that he's actually going to be there. I think the video is already up to something like a, a few million views. Uh, so check out Cricket Wireless. Check out Cena Surprise uh, and visit your local Cricket Wireless store today. Uh, speaking of also wrestling, as you know, I am the color commentary uh, extraordinaire for IHWE Wrestling. And we have our probably our biggest event of the year uh, coming up July 31st. And where you and I met and first heard Motley Crue in, in Crowley, Texas. Well, I guess when we first heard Motley Crue together. Uh, and uh, July 31st, it's going to be a great time, whatever. Jerry Lynn's going to make his return. Uh, Charlie Haas is going to be there. I'm going to be there. Uh, tickets start at $10. Uh, if you go on to trickykid.com, it's T-R-I-C-K-Y hyphen K-I-D.com. That's our website. Uh, there's a link there, or you can go on and just type in I-H-W-E Wrestling. Uh, we're also going to have... Um, a, a benefit just a few weeks after August the 15th. Um, as you know, we do this show out of from the Dallas Fort Worth area and you know, the headlines that Dallas has made recently um, with, uh, with, with, you know, the tragedies that's been going on uh, with some police officers that have lost their lives and, and a lot of turmoil. And we're going to try to bring some healing to some people um, uh, of, of all shapes and sizes and of colors and backgrounds and give a, give a great day of uh, as a, as a benefit not only as a remembrance, but also, like I said, to kind of just get some perspective on what's going on in the world, whatever. So, uh, so while you're on the website there, you can check that out and uh, and uh, get your tickets for that. That's going to happen on August the 15th. 
with IHW Wrestling. Uh, okay, so now uh, back to the show. And not only that, but so after they kind of weathered the storm, which didn't really look like that they were going to be able to weather the storm, they were kind of basically informed that they weren't going to be able to continue as they were without Vince. Now, what kind of what kind of blow do you think to their ego or to their mindset that was at that time? Well, I mean, I'd, I'd be curious to know how well the Motley Crue self-titled album did. Um, well, I can tell you, like, it tanked. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, that explains it. Um, yeah, and, and, and again, I don't really remember much about this album. I do remember John Karabi mentioning that, hey, I think the, he kind of was very humbled and he kind of, hey, he kind of fell on the sword himself. He said, hey, you guys. Well, well you can credit him that, but let me, let me tell you a couple of things. Okay, again, what reasons why, again, that, that Karabi album could have been Shout at the Devil Part 2. Mm-hmm. All right. The head of promotions at that time uh, for, for talent relations was a woman named Sylvia Rome. And Sylvia Rome okay. wasn't going to do anything but wipe her ass with anything that they handed, that, that they turned in. It didn't matter. The fact that it was a Vinceless Motley crew in 1994 just gave her reason to do it. So, first of all, the record was largely underpromoted. Okay. okay. So, you could say they underpromoted it because Karabi was on it. Okay. But what about this? And this is the, this is what we're getting, getting getting into now. So this is where it truly becomes a business. Because no matter how bad the record might have tanked and they were no longer that popular. And I remember Nikki uh, saying that he knew that it was over with Karabi when they did some radio show somewhere. And he went on the air and said, anybody that shows up the record, uh, to the radio station today when I, when I walk downstairs is getting in free to the concert tonight. And he said if that had been wow. in 89, there would have been 5,000 people out there. And he says when he left the radio station that day, there were two Mexican dudes. Like, <laughs> and he was like, yep, this, oh. is, this is over. Okay. Now, yeah. And that was, that was what, 95? That had been like 94, 95. 95 right? Right. Okay. So, okay. So you can say that Sylvia Rohn didn't want to, want to promote it because, okay. you know, what, what could we do with a Motley crew, a Vinceless right. Motley crew in 1994, 95? But – so the head of the label, Mo Austin, basically here's where it becomes again, show biz ain't show friends, and says, get the other guy back. <laughs> That's what he said. And he was calling Vince. He said, get the other guy back. All right? Wow. So he's telling the other band, he's telling Nikki this. Well, here's the deal. All four of them, including Karabi, arrive at the label for a meeting. And they and Mo Austin made Karabi sit out. <laughs> in the lobby. Oh. Like you're wow. not you're you're not a member of this you're not you're not a part of this machine. But think about this. In no, actuality, you that's true. I mean, he was a supplement when you think about okay, it. Okay, right. But 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 at the same time, that's how it looks to outsiders. But no matter how much that record tanked, think about to where them, yeah. Think about where you were. Let's say that let's say you were married to this person and this person was horrible. Okay, but let's say that your family and your friends and everybody else loved her, okay, but she was terrible to you, okay, <laughs> okay? Then you've gone out and have found happiness. Mm-hmm. You found somebody else, you're inspired, you're going wow. on you're going on vacation. Uh, nobody gets it because they, they miss right. you with the old person, but they ain't you, okay? So no matter how much you know, it tanked 
or you know financially and everything else and blah blah blah. They're they were happy. They were like, look, we're not. I never thought about it that way. We're not rats. Uh, we're not these bands that that didn't have. Because you think about it, it took a, it was ego driven, but it took a lot of balls to that. It may have been misguided. It may have been uh, you know somewhat clueless from a business standpoint. But at the same time, it, it, it was it was they were defying everything and everybody else. Of course, the money they made from Doctor Feelgood allowed such such um, a defiant spirit. Okay, but that was their statement. Okay, so now everybody now wants you at the height at the peak of your romance with this new girl. They're saying break up with her and get the old bring back. <laughs> you know, you, you know what I'm saying? Like spouse number one, bring oh, back. Right. Like you hadn't even seen all of this new girl's uh, lingerie yet before <laughs> you're, you're at, you know, with the other girl, oh, whoa. you've seen hers wadded up in the, in the hamper. Right. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, okay. So, I, I feel that makes me feel a little guilty. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for how I, right. okay. I kind of looked at, at that, that uh, album and that, but, Right. Okay. Think about that. Okay. So what, right before we, we went on air, I, I, I showed you this was that, uh, so, okay. So Motley Crue is now back with Vince Neil. And again, like I said, and the only real promotion is a lead in to a, you know, where Motley Crue is really back now because now all four members are in the band, but it's still 1997 guys. Okay. And so, the label, the only thing they did to promote it was they got them a spot at the American Music Awards and had uh, Tommy's wife, Pamela Lee, Pamela Anderson, who was more famous by 1997 than Motley Crue was. Right. So it was almost kind of like like if we can get her, it was almost like if he hadn't have been, if Tommy hadn't have been with her, would this have happened? Okay. <laughs> but here's, here's the crazy thing. You just saw it. Vince looked great. They looked great. It blew me away. Yeah. You forget how much ass and how firing on all cylinders they were in 1997. But because of, again, it was still the 90s. And it was hungry. It kind of reminded me of, you know, again, how fresh and hungry they were on the first couple albums. Because Vince was like, I'm back at the band. Yeah, I'm ready. And he looked great, sounded great. You know, and they, were, they even made them do this silly thing where they did like a remix of Shout at the Devil called Shout 97. And, and okay, you know. It and, was actually pretty heavy. But it actually was, <laughs> it was good. It was good. tight. Yeah. But, you know, they're having to go against type. They're having to go against the, you know, the new metal, meaning in you with the umlauts yes. over it and the whole Limp Biscuit corn thing. Uh, and then, of course, you know, Bush was now, you know, the kind of the second wave of grunge. Yeah. So this, to see Motley Crue. You know, like how, like when bands go away for a while, and then they're kind of looked at as like classic rock. Then they can they they can do the award shows forever because people are like, oh, those guys. <laughs> but trying to compete with those people as an equal in 1997 again, that'd be like seeing like the Strawberry Alarm Clock on uh, <laughs> you know at, at this year's Vibe Awards, right. okay, or what, whatever whatever it is, the Essence Awards, whatever. Um, but it's a great reminder because that was the lead-in to the first Motley record with Vince Neil since 1989. So, so it had been eight years, right? Okay. Or I guess uh, it's 96, whatever, uh, 97. Okay. Um, and then, you know, the first Motley record period in, the, in three years. So this was supposed to be 
Like, let's forget all about that other stuff with Karabi. Not, not the band, but I think that the label and in the aesthetic. For them to make an album called Generation Swine. And we're finally going to get to some music here because uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play you uh, the title track from the album Generation Swine. Uh, and we're going to talk about that tour and what that was about because this should have been like huge. So again, like how we said, how Sylvia didn't produce, wouldn't promote it because Vince wasn't in the band. Well, they didn't promote Generation Swine either. Would now that Vince was in the band, yeah. was it because it was the climate of the day still, or was it was because it sounded like this? <laughs> so, yeah, because you think that here it is, 1997. Vince Neil is back. Yeah. No, this is an opportunity. Was this a missed opportunity for the record label? You know, yeah. I mean, there's a lot going on here. This is exciting. Vince Neil's back. Right. Anticipation. Okay. You you know, there's a lot that they could have done for this album and promoting it. Okay. Uh, but that leads to your point, um, the music. Yes. So the content. So with that, so that's why I want to play you Generation Swine. And uh, to kind of refresh your memory, if you haven't visited that record in a while, uh, and then we're gonna and we're gonna come back with some thoughts about that. Yeah. 
away now every day I take all I can get just like you So that was Generation Swine. Right. The return of Vince Neil. That's right. Uh, you just heard. Uh, so what did you guys think? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thoughts on that? So that, that's where I want to pose that question, and, I want to, and, I, and I'll put it to you and also our listeners. So uh, tweet at us, uh, at uh, Tricky Kid, uh, the number two on Twitter. Chris, um, what's the best way to them to reach you? What is it? Um, it's on Twitter or Facebook? Uh, Facebook. Okay, and, and how can they reach you on Facebook? Uh, you can look me up, Christopher Todd, Hazel, okay. Texas. There you go. Okay, and let, and let us know what you think about this. But okay, so I'll put this to you right now, Chris Todd. Sylvia Roan wasn't going to promote a Vince Neilless Motley Crue. It's certainly not 1994. Kurt Cobain could have joined Motley Crue instead of offing himself, and she wasn't <laughs> gonna she wasn't gonna promote that shit. Okay. Right. But now that Vince is back and it's three years later, they still didn't promote it. Why? Was it because that they were just done and to people at the label this was some old dinosaur that they didn't want to deal with anymore? Or was it because it sounded like what it, what you just heard? <laughs> That's a very good question. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of questions here. Um, yeah, you would think that, you know. Um, coming off the American Music Awards, uh, they were fresh. God, it, it looked was, so good. Vince was back. Vince looked great. Yes. It sounded great. I was hyped. Yes. Uh, so, you know, going into Generation Swine, you know, yes, this is their moment. Yeah. You know, they, they're going to bring that fresh, you know, coming back. We're back together, uh, us for our gang. Uh, we thought that that's what we would hear uh, on Generation Swine. Um, but... That may not necessarily be the case. Right. And, and all the, the influences are clearly there. This is clearly Nikki once again going. Because, again, think about it from a personal standpoint. If I have to make a record with my ex-wife, we're going to make it my way. Right? I, I think, yeah, you said it perfectly. I mean, again, you're putting these four back into the studio. That's right. Okay. Um, having to write a record. Um, and again, I don't know how much material Nikki already had. Uh, but that's what I think. I think that because if you look at it, that this record would have definitely fit 
the new John Karabi model wouldn't have. It would have. Okay. That's it may have been better off with Karabi. Well, that's why they should have called it something else. You see what I'm saying? Like they should have called the self-titled one and Generation Swine something else. Because keep in mind, he was having to write songs uh, that Vince could actually could sing. And when you hear the first, the, what did you say when, when I played it for you? The first 12 bars, what did you ask me? You go, is that Vince Neil? Right. It was so, it's so saturated and so filtered. Yeah. I mean, it, and, yeah. and it's a record, like I said, when they all go back and ask them, what is your least favorite Motley Crue record? They all, including Vince, of course, Vince, because they're asking him to come back to Motley Crue, but they're asking him to sing this industrial, like, Nine Inch Nails record. And he's just like, hey, man, I want to sing about chicks and cars. And that's that's what he that's who yeah. he is. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it, it's I mean, we're it, it sounds so processed. I mean, we're talking like cat food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, well, I mean, there's so yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, but I can see what you're saying there. You know, it it really sounds like you know they're like, how do we, how do we have these songs and how do we work with Vince in his vocal range? Well, yeah, but but again, I still think it was kind of like, look, you might be back in the band because Mo Austin won't let us make our own music uh, if we don't, but we're still going to do it my way and we're not going to be doing any of that you know girls, girls, girls stuff because because right. we want to be. Uh, relevant and hip and new and you know and the definition of, perf- of perfection is all is constantly changing. So I, I, I get and that. that's the thing is right, right. relevant. Mm-hmm. We're you know you're you're looking at Motley Crue and you have this record label and I, I mean are they relevant? You have Vince back, but right, you're right. Look at what can they do? How can they market? You know, but but the, but the shitty thing is and the sad thing is is that they had made an 80s Motley Crue record in 1997. I don't think, first of all, I don't think anything Motley did. I think timing is also everything. It's like what Lemmy says. If you don't do it at the right time, you'll, ne- you'll, you'll never do it. Well, okay. Yep. So I don't think if they, whatever, I don't think that the word and name Motley Crue had any meaning to music fans in 1997 from a relevant standpoint, no matter what kind of right. record they made. And, and I think the label knew that. They're in the biz- their art is making money. They don't really care what the record sounds like. If they think they can make make a, a, a dollar, there you have it. So that's the difference between primarily between a record like Generation Swine and a record like Too Fast for Love. Because a record like Too Fast for Love isn't compromised. It's for people that are hungry. And you, I always say you have your whole life to make your first record, and then yep. you got 10 months to make your second one. Right? <laughs> okay. Because it's now it's now a business. So reason, so anything that Motley Crue was going to make in 1997 was going to be compromised in spite of the fact of how hungry and awesome they looked at the American Music Awards that year, okay? Yeah. So that's why, like I said, I don't really think that anything that they had, they had put out. So that, that, was, that was against them, you know, you know what I mean? Uh, but at the same time, did that mean that they still had to make – Again, I, I, it still feels like again that they're in Karabiland because they were, you know, even if yeah. he's not in the band anymore, they're they're probably. That's only like what a year removed. Just, just a couple, that, a couple yeah. of years, right? Okay. So anyway, but and here was something else. They were trying to fit the new business model, uh, and I'm sure that you know this. They didn't come up with this on their own. I'm sure that this was their their new they had new management and the whole bit was they did this thing where it was called a live listening party. 
And what that meant was was that Motley Crue were, were purposely playing these these smaller because you would think that with you know with a a, a returning Vince they would be back doing the arenas. And they came to uh, in Dallas. There was a, used to be a venue called the Bronco Bowl that held about about five thousand people, which you know most arenas hold about twenty thousand, so about a fourth of the size of an arena. And and it was smart because instead of exposing how the decline of their fan base, it was under the guise of we want to do something intimate. Like, but we're in a small place by choice because we want to give you guys <laughs> something intimate. Because we're going to do what is called a live listening party, where we're going to actually going to play live just the Generation Swine album. So I I actually heard all of those songs on that album played live. Okay, there was no shout at the devil. There was no home sweet home, and so you can't really picture a band doing something like that unless they had to. Where they were trying to tell you that this was by choice, but it was so transparent that this was by force. Do you understand? Yes. And so, <clears throat> and then at the end, imagine seeing Motley Crue, and at the end of the show, after Motley like, goes off stage, instead of like trashing the hotel room and laying waste to the entire town via the Shout of the Devil tour, they came back out and did like a Q&A, like this was like the Sundance Film Festival. <laughs> you know, and uh, but it's important because that was the first time that I saw Motley since the Girls, Girls, Girls tour, which was the only time I'd ever seen them. So yeah. I saw them in 87 and then I saw them in 97. Ten years later. Yeah. And then they went on this other other tour. And then by the time that tour ended, you know, the whole thing that Vince and Tommy had actually had come to blows. So right. if anybody was unhappy the most that the, the ex-wife was back in the band just because <laughs> Mo Austin says you guys are back in the band doesn't mean that, you know, they were with Karabi, you know, they're with somebody new, you know, you don't want to fuck your old lady if, when you got, so, when you're all excited about this, this, this new gal, right? You see what I'm saying? And, uh, and so that was going to have to finally, Proved to have a breaking point. The, the label wasn't supporting it. There was nobody at the shows. Uh, and so now they could point to you being back in the band. Did, didn't even, like, like, we're only putting up with your crap because to save us from obscurity. And right. now you're not doing that. And, it, and Tommy and Vince actually literally came to blows. Do you, do you, yeah. do you remember this in the headlines? What, yeah, what, are, what are your memories of, about it at that time? Well, I mean, I just remember that it was a Tommy and Vince kind of thing. I know, uh, and, and you make a good point, uh, and it, it, that's a good way of stating it about the, you know, uh, the, the ex-wife, you know, you, you know, spouse number one. Um, because again, I, I think Tommy really, at that point, I think that he was really into a lot of other music styles. He was really being influenced by hip hop at the time. Um, so you could imagine when you were just really being excited and you're, you're listening to new music in different styles. You're being influenced by, by you know, hip hop. Uh, you have Vince Neil, uh, and you're forced to work with him, um, and you're you're forced to be be put fit back into that box. Right. Um, I can see where the, the tensions were there. But instead of throwing Vince under the bus, what they should have done was, again, my opinion, because I'm a member of the gang, just like you, was. <clears throat> 
Like, continue without Vince, call it something else. But if you're going to have Vince back in the band, make a Motley album. I don't think it would have mattered in terms of promotion, okay? But, but I mean, but that that was the whole point of why they put him back in the band, though, you see? But you got to think about it. How relevant or how successful would it have been to make a Motley Crue album in 97? Yeah. You know, we and we would have loved that. You know, yeah. I would have loved to hear a Too Fast for Love or a Shut Up Little Devil Part 2 yeah. in 97. But could you imagine them trying to convince, uh, you know, the record label or even themselves, really, right. to, to come up with a, a Motley Crue album? Yeah, yeah, because they weren't in, in a Motley Crue. Vince probably was, but and he right. was just being told what to do. And he was kind of like, like David Lee Roth back in Van Halen. I can't rock the You don't rock the boat when you're sitting in it. You know what I mean? And uh, like I, I'm back. I'm not going to do anything to make right. you regret it. Uh, all right, you know. But so now, for it to spill over, it now caused Tommy to leave. So Tommy is out. Tommy is out of the band. So now, here's where I want to dr- draw a delineated, like imaginary but very real line here because of the actual podcast. Because this will now be the second half. Of this podcast, okay, of, the, of this, of this, of this very episode, because now, just like how we did the turning point of how we, how the '80s became the '90s, and Motley Crue became industrial, and then they became something else. But <laughs> Vince was back, but they were still, some, you know, kind of the, the mixture of the two. Yeah. And now Tommy's out, so. We can't keep it together, but now it's now not only a new decade, a new, you know, a new century, it's a new millennium, okay? And how do do this Motley crew deal with that? So are they going to be looked at even, even less relevant and even more of a dinosaur, or what do they do? Well, uh, and I can answer that, okay? So now we're going to start with we're going to start with the 2000s now, okay? And 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 it, it's odd because we don't know what to call that first thing. You, you heard it called the aughts, and I cringe. I get douche chills whenever I hear that. <laughs> whenever somebody got to go in the early aughts, it's like it's like somebody wearing it like an Ed Hardy shirt. It's like I just I, I suddenly get douche chills. Um, you don't know what to call that decade, so it all blends together, but. 10, 2000 to 2009 is one decade, okay? 2010 to the present is the current decade. Those are two separate decades, all right? But since we don't know what to call it, and it's got those weird numbers, 2000 to 2016 seems like the all the same, doesn't it? it That's does. why it seems like time has gone by so quickly. So we're going to make a, a clear definition of just this next decade of 2000 to 2009, okay? And... How do they respond? Well, business as usual. They made another record without Tommy. And I think that at that point, I think it was kind of strange because it was like they knew, at least Nikki knew, that we can't get another singer. We can't get Gary Sharon or whatever uh, um, Van Halen was doing at the time. Or that's why they couldn't get Gary Sharon because Van right. Halen Van had, Halen took- had already had taken <laughs> yeah. him. Um, but what they did was was that uh, you know I think that that, uh, that, that Nikki was kind of out with with Tommy as well and here here's why I think think about what you said earlier it's one thing to be influenced by new sounds and new music and I love Tommy you know that mm-hmm. but I also know Tommy's need 
to be the eternal teenager. Right. And like, I'm at our age right now. You're not going to hear me use your daughter's nomenclature and her slang. Okay. I may do it around her to tease her with it, but I'm not going to be like, uh, uh, Hey, twerk, bay, Pokemon go. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, you know, I, right. I, cause I'm not 17. Okay. Right. Tommy. I, and I say this because Tommy Lee, if you notice, it's kind of hard to take it seriously because it seems like whatever was popular at the time, Tommy was, Tommy was, was into it. So, yeah. so instead of being the leader that they were with Too Fast and Shout, it seemed like they were playing, or at least he was playing catch-up. And he came out with a solo uh, period, some output during this time as well, mm-hmm. with something called Methods of Mayhem that is... A, the most festering turd of <laughs> anything that, that any of these guys have ever, and I'm a massive hip hop fan, but it wasn't any original about it. The logo looked like Cypress Hill and like Lil Kim's in the video. I love Lil Kim, okay? But just because Lil Kim was in it, and I'm not saying that Tommy can't do other things, okay? Mm-hmm. You can do other things, but do you. Yeah, okay. I think it came off as it's desperate. It came uh, off as relevant, like, it's trying like irrelevant. I have to distance myself from this dinosaur. Good point. Okay, and and I have to seem like I'm the newest, most relevant thing there is, and this is what that is. So that's why, you know, it dates it to a a, a just a very brief trend in music that he attached himself to, instead of going out and being a creator. And being a uh, a leader, he was just like, "Oh, little Kim's hot right now," and and this is what the kids are listening to and dancing to, and yeah. and then you see him on using you know teen nomenclature slang and say, "What's what's cracking? What's popping?" It's like you know, <laughs> all right, dude, okay. And I love Tom, uh, but so so they start the new decade, the new century, the new millennium. Uh, with a, a very appropriate title, like 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 Generation Swine is a, uh, I said a Hunter S. Thompson neo uh, kind of beat poet kind of right. uh, thing that would have been over the collective heads because as much as we're Motley members of the gang, you know that anybody that was still clamoring for a new Motley record in 97 was probably the lowest common denominator that doesn't know who the hell Hunter S. Thompson is. Okay, so in 2000. Very appropriately, they came out with an album called New Tattoo. Think about that. We got a, you know, it's it's new. We got a, we got a, we got a new tattoo. It still at the time felt, even though it's a new decade and everything else, the they were in this kind of this neat kind of sweet spot in a way, because as the, the millennials were were now claiming that decade for themselves, okay. They were now they went from being, like I said, like that, oh, what are these guys trying to do by competing as equals? And now as kind of being that kind of like made men type kind of thing, like that that elder statesman kind of where you know, but but they were still putting out original material and still trying to compete and not as all four members. They had Randy Castillo, the, you know, the legendary drummer for right. Ozzy, Ozzy and everybody else come. And this, this to show you also where not only were the hair bands 
you know, suffering uh, uh, throughout the 90s. By 2000, when we talked about earlier in part one about how we were kind of separating from the gang a little bit because we needed something a little heavier and a little a little more let less sleazy and more like I don't know I guess just violent is what we were you know like most most young young men right so for us it was all about you know Anthrax and Megadeth and Slayer and all that so by 2000 Motley Crue releases an album called New Tattoo with a new drummer and goes out on a tour called the Maximum Rock Tour and this was the next time that I saw Motley since the whole generation listening party debacle and the opening acts Anthrax and Megadeth. Megadeth. So by 2000, those bands were now opening for Motley Crue. They experienced their own lean years. Yeah. What do you remember about, about that stuff at that time? Well, I, you know, again, Anthrax and Megadeth, uh, you know, they, to me, they, they'd already lived through their, They'd exhausted themselves by that time. Um, so for me, that was very unusual. Um, I, I didn't get it. I didn't. I didn't see how you know Motley Crue fit with Anthrax and Megadeth. Right. So it was a very unusual fit for me. Well, I, I think it was because again, those two. I think Megadeth got kicked off at the first week. You know, could you imagine? Could you imagine Dave Mustaine, Vince Neil, and oh, right? You know. Uh, and you know, Nikki Six. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, could you really? Could you imagine it? Right? Okay. Because all because all those bands. Because you know, Mustaine was giving those guys shit. And, oh yeah. And, uh, uh, well, anyway, and so, uh, but but Anthrax, it makes a little more sense because they had gotten again a new singer a few years prior. Uh, you know, and we're tr- you're trying to stay relevant. And they had some really lean years, and they were really in pieces by 2000. Mm-hmm. They had come out with a record called called Volume Eight and. They didn't even they didn't even have a guitar player and like Dimebag played on the tracks, but then they had like two or th- had, like one guy was on the record, one guy was touring, one guy was it was you know kind of a thing. But I wanted to mention this that Scott Ian and Anthrax or at least especially Scott Ian has owes a huge debt <laughs> to that because Meatloaf's daughter was one of the backup singers for that tour. Her name was Pearl a Day, okay, and that's where. He, Scott Ian meets Pearl. Now, nothing gets my man Scott Ian, but you, we all know what Scott Ian looks like, and we know <laughs> what he looked like in 2000. So, this five foot four bald Jewish man from New York uh, that uh, was about a half a dice roll away from being being a uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, being a rabbi if he uh, if this tour didn't work mm-hmm. out, uh, he meets this gorgeous blonde live the kind of person that would be singing back up for Molly Crew. So right. you can imagine what, what what she looked like and still does. She's gorgeous. Uh and they're married uh to this day, have a child and uh are in a couple bands together. She's a great singer too. She has a uh, uh, her own band this is called Pearl. And they've been in a couple of things together. Uh actually with um uh the guys from Mother Station. Remember when Rollins band kind of broke up and Henry Rollins kind of got it back together, but it wasn't with those guys. It was this other band called, they were called Mother Station. I don't remember that. Uh, they have a band called uh, Motor Sister or something like that, whatever. They came out with a record a couple years ago. Anyway, a little, little side note there. Um, but I want to play you something off of it okay. because I want people to know what, what, what Motley sounded like in 2000. This, is, this was their statement to start it, even without Tommy. And what's crap about it is that 
And I, and I kind of going against the thing. It's like I wasn't willing to play a Motley Crue song that didn't have Vince on it. I shouldn't be willing to play a Motley Crue song that doesn't have Tommy on it. Uh, but but it's it's a little it's a little different situation here. Um, and you ought to see what like like let, let me let me read off to you like some of these these song titles because I mean this was so very much um, like what you would expect a Motley Crue not it wasn't Hunter S Thompson lyrics. Okay, the the opening song is a song called Hell on High Heels. Okay? Yeah, that's so Motley Crue. Yeah, Treat Me Like the Dog I Am, the title track, Drag Strip Superstar, She Needs Rock and Roll, Hollywood Ending, White Punks on Dope. <laughs> okay? And then the song... Uh, uh, that I'm actually going to play right now, which is a song called Punched in the Teeth by Love. Wow. Okay, that's what you want from a Motley record. That's right. Why couldn't Tommy have been on board? Why couldn't, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's what you want. This that's was what I want, but do I want that in 2000? Well, I'll let you decide. <laughs> Listen to this.
So we just got punched in the teeth by love. <laughs> we got uh, punched in the teeth by something. We did. Uh, off a new tattoo. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, you just heard that. Um, this came out in 2000. 2000. That was their statement. It started the new millennium. Right. So, uh, <laughs> what did you think? <laughs> what did you think? Uh, what did I think? Yeah. Uh, again, it starts really fresh. It's like, okay, yeah, this is Motley Crue. Big it guitars. Good. Right, it sounds yeah. really good. Uh, but just again, the cringe-worthy chorus, trying to trying to do that little catchy hook. Yeah. Um. Yeah, you know, in two thousand, that's not what I that's not what I wanted. Okay. And again, I know we can discuss this. You know, what 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 do we want uh, from Motley Crue? What do we want from these these bands that we care about? That right. We, that we grew up with the gang. We're members of the right, gang. Right. Right. You know, and, and that, that that's you know, and this again could be another uh, show in itself. Is that you know, yes, I love ACDC, uh, but ACDC will come out with an I I know I what I will get. I will get the right. same album, but. It's those bands that are able to reinvent, to to be fresh. Um, that that's what we look for, right? Um, but at the same time, you're right because you make a point. Because you know, I I am torn here because all I want, I, I all I want is Motley Crue, circa eighty one through eighty four. Okay, now I agree with that, but we have to talk about the fairness of that because. Again, this isn't this is episode isn't about that per se, but I will I will comment on that, okay, by saying this. How are bands able to be around for 40 years, 50 years, 30 years, or even 20 years? You see what I'm saying? Right. Is it because a band like your example of ACDC, is it because of there's joy and repetition and you know what you're gonna get? Nobody, nobody wants a polka album from ACDC. You see what I'm saying? Or they don't want anything but ACDC. But ACDC has been able to somehow do make new music, but still kind of retain that that synergy. Right. right. Okay. So what? But whenever a band reaches a point in their career when people, no matter how good it is, no matter how it could be like if it was the first record you ever heard by that band, it may have been your your favorite album by them. But at some point, a band gets to a, a point in their career where they've been around for a long time where people do not want anything else new. They want what they remember. Right. And I I don't know how fair that is. Okay. You know, Prince talked about this a lot in, in, in you know in during his career was that he would come out with a record every year and still for thirty years, but when he would go to the concerts. What were people? What were people yelling at him? Right. They they want the classics. They well they want what, what they want what they remember, and yep. they, they they have stopped retaining any new music. It's kind of like like have you ever like gone to like a music festival and it's like ten of your favorite bands are there, but by the time you get to like the sixth or seventh band, you kind of wish that that there was only like three of your favorites there because by the time you right. get to, it's like you're watching you know uh motorhead but you're like god you're you're the ninth band i've heard today i i can't i can't retain <laughs> anything else today you know uh so there's that unfairness I and mean, that's a whole other other topic but how do you think that that what you just heard where does it fit into the trajectory when talking about motley crew because you have to think about it since since vince wasn't obviously on the self-titled and Tommy's not on New Tattoo. 
the records don't exist. Let's say that Motley was still touring and continuing everything else. You would never hear a song by either one of those albums because of the whole. Right. So, and you're right. And it's not fair because it sounds like a new tattoo. They try to maintain that essence of, you know, of right. how they started. Well, Okay, as what you said earlier was that they were no longer with Elektra. They started their own label called Motley Records, and this was also the new millennium, and this was the first release on Motley Records. So, so, but do you think they were trying to retain the essence, or does some of the songwriting seem kind of weak, where it, they're kind of retreading some old ideas, but just not as effective? That's yeah. Regardless of regardless right of the of the time period. Okay. Yeah. It just kind of sounded like I, I don't know. It just seems like a uh, not a hundred percent was put into that writing, that material. Right, right. Um, and again, it sounded kind of. It sounds like Molly Crew. Yeah, you know, it sounds like it's you know, Molly de- definitely more than yeah, the last yeah. two records. It, that's true. Okay. Um, but you know, something's just not quite right. Right. You know, and I think you're right. I think it's trying to rehash old tricks. Yeah, you know? like 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 this is you know the the the, the chanting chorus type kind of yeah, thing whatever. The, the, the cringeworthy chanting. <laughs> the, the and again it's like you stated, you know, like you know 2000, you know I, by by 2000, you know, yeah, what, what were you what were you we into? Were, yeah, I mean Rage Against the Machines Battle of Los Angeles had just come out yeah, maybe the yeah. year before 99 and I tell you what that album did not leave my 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 right. car for 2 years. Uh that's how much uh, uh, that 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 album you were distanced from 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 you know from the gang, right? Yeah, I, mean, I was, we we had branched. I mean, I think, and that's where you and I, you know, we kind of we completely branched off, and we start. I mean, again, we had our bands and we shared. Sure, we, we had you know Fugazi and right. Three Eleven, and we'll always have Motley, uh, right? Of course, but, but but I think you know around two thousand, we had started branching out and started experimenting our own different kind of world, and that's healthy, and that's what yes. we should do because we kind of took Motley for granted because we thought well, we'll always have Motley, we'll always have Two Thousand right. for Love, but by two thousand, I, mean, I was getting into some you know, uh, you know by nineteen nineteen by you know, I've been a professional DJ since nineteen ninety eight, so I by by I was working for an electronic label, so. 2000, dude, I was listening to Air and, and the Chemical Brothers and, right. yep. uh, and Fatboy Slim, and I was DJing on the weekends. And uh, and then, you know, I was dating somebody that was turning me on to a lot of really different stuff. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I, I first started getting into um, 2000. Uh, Portishead was pretty big. Oh, yeah. And by, I'd, I'd been into Portishead for, right. for, a, for a few years. Yeah, I mean, by the time I was already way into that kind of stuff, Portishead, Massive Attack, obviously tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, but 2000, uh, you know, I was getting like I was in like Modest Mouse and uh, at the drive-in, and all all these right. new bands were coming out with this new stuff. And so again, so it was like I was into the people that were claiming that decade for themselves, you know, and kind of taking Motley for, for granted. But I did go to the tour, and and <laughs> even though Tommy wasn't there, uh, it was cool. And and unfortunately, I have to say, you know, poor Randy, uh, uh, you know, he didn't make it, and right. he lost his battle with cancer the, the following year. And even more, in another weird chapter of uh, of this very weird band on a long, strange trip, was that they replaced Randy touring wise with a female. What I thought that was really cool uh, with the old drummer from the band Hole, Samantha Mahoney. Uh, so I actually I saw that tour twice. I saw it with Randy, and I saw it with Samantha. And wow. uh, with all the really yeah, in two different spectrums. Yeah, you have Randy Castillo. Uh, who was, you know, I mean, VIP, you know, 
success uh, of the eighties. Yeah, I mean, totally. you think of Raina Castillo. I mean, he's he's celebrity. He's he's metal. He's royalty. metal royalty, right? Exactly, right. Exactly. And then you go to the other extreme to the grunge kind of new era. Well, think about this. Think about if you're going to see Samantha. If you're going to see Motley Crue, not only is Tommy Lee not there, the person sitting in Tommy Lee's chair is the girl that hangs out with Courtney Love. Wow. Okay. And because Randy Castillo is dead, think about. Okay, think about that. And it was funny because, like, how at the beginning of the tour, it was Megadeth and Anthrax trying to be whatever. But the second half of the tour with Samantha, I think it was the Scorpions. So wow. suddenly, they're, they're, on one hand, they're trying to be cool. Mm-hmm. So it was weird that, like, you see, yes, Mo- weird. You know, it was kind of a weird thing. But so that is the perfect segue into the very next thing I wanted to talk about was, like, you were saying, what do you, what do you want from Motley Crue? At this point, if you want anything from them, okay, and what you want is what you remember. And what they did was was that, and this was something that I don't know if anything has happened like this since with anybody else, but I know that this was the first ever to do this. They got, uh, you know, again, Tommy's not. Maybe he's he's, he's going to be in the band, maybe not, whatever. But uh, they came out with a book called The Dirt, okay. And I told you before we went on air, I was gonna I was gonna bust your chops about this a little right. bit, uh, but I'll get that here in a second. Was that reason why I mentioned that was it was a book with with no spoilers for those that haven't read it, like you, sir. Now, uh, uh, now reason why I say teasing was because uh, for Christmas last year um, I had gone out, had realized that, that my man here hadn't read The Dirt, which is unthinkable, not just because of uh, what Motley fanatics we are, but it's like you don't have to be a fan of the band. It is the greatest book on rock and roll. Hammer to the Gods, I challenge you. Um, any any debauchery, any story that Led Zeppelin has about mud sharks uh, <laughs> is, is Candyland compared to – I could literally – if I had my copy right here, okay, I could open it <laughs> to, in, to any page. And it would be the dirtiest three paragraphs of in of debauchery. <laughs> I have been on the road. I have toured. I've even I've toured with Ween for Christ's sake. Uh, and the things that are that happen and exist in this book are uh, rooms in your mind that you don't voluntarily go into. Okay, <laughs> um, it's amazing. And especially about because you know, like like look at the picture on on the back of Too Fast for Love. Look at the front. So, it, you know, in, in, you know, the music sounds like it looks. But what about the other 200 days of the year when they're not on tour? Like, what are they doing? Oh, my God. So what makes it unique is that they get all four members of the band to write the book. So it's not it's not Vince's book. It's not Tommy's book. It's not Nick's. You know, it's not Nicky's. Uh, Neil Strauss, who's kind of like the de facto du jour biographer for the rock stars uh, since then. He did, he did Marilyn Manson's book. I think he did... Uh, uh, the dude from Slip. Now he's done a bunch of them. anyway. So what? For, so for example, starting at the very beginning of the band, they would have let's say Nikki t- talk, and then they would go to Vince, and he would read what Nikki wrote, and they're not taking jabs at each other, but it's you're getting the perspective from all four of them, and then like something that would be like you will you know you know, like uh, like the thing that happened in Denver with Mick getting busted for for indecent exposure. Right. Mick tells that story. Obviously, the deal with uh, you know with the DW with the, the drunk driving incident mm-hmm. with Vince. Obviously, Vince tells that story. 
But then you get their rebuttal or feedback from it. Okay. And it's called the dirt because I think the tagline was some things just don't wash off. And let me tell you something. You will want to take a shower after you read this book. The reason why I said I, I, I was giving, busting your chops was that I had to realize that you had never read it. That I went out and not only found the dirt, but they had the special limited edition hardbound thing that had an extra chapter in it. It had the, right. the sliding case and, uh, and, and was excited about it. And uh, and what happened to that book, sir? Well, I have a lot of books, um, <laughs> which is good. Right. You, can, you um, all can tell he's a very well-read young man. Uh, it's somewhere missing in my house. It, I, I think I read maybe four pages. Okay. And uh, I, I don't know. I think maybe the kids were doing some cleaning, maybe reorganizing. But somehow, somewhere, uh, I can't. I can't find the dirt. It is missing somewhere in the house. So, find the dirt. Uh, I'm on a mission to find it because yes, it it, it really is. It, it's a great book. Yeah, know? it's just the the, the packaging. Uh, it, it's it's a really cool thing. But here's why it's important. Like I said because you can tell that by 2001, if somebody wanted something from Motley, if they wanted anything at all, it actually wasn't music. They wanted Absolutely. right. Absolutely. They wanted they wanted the story. They wanted right. what they remembered, and what and also they wanted what they didn't know about what they remembered. Right. Do you understand? Absolutely. So the dirt was the most successful thing that Motley had done since Doctor Feelgood, and it wasn't an album. Wow. It was a New York Times bestseller. It's still a reputable catalog item. Uh, it still moves a lot because. I know people that have that have that don't like Motley Crue or could never buy a Motley Crue record that know that book yeah. because it became something beyond Motley Crue. It became like Pamela DeBar's is uh, I'm with the band. It became Led Zeppelin's Hammer with the Gods. It's like what well, you know. It became something larger, so much so that there's actually going to be a movie adaptation. Wow. So we have. I'm excited about that. So we we have not seen the last of us going to the movies. Love to it. see something uh, to do with Motley Crue. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, you make a very good point. You know, by by 2001, you're right. We don't we don't really want the music, but we want to know because again, you know, when you think about you know the LA scene of the 80s, the metal because you're missing it. This is right, this point. right. You Why know, didn't the, you want it in 93? Was because you were wanting something new. But by 2001, you were missing it. Right. I want to know about the days of the Sunset Strip. That's right. I, I want to know all the stories. What happened? You know, all the rumors. Yeah. Uh, you know, all the stories, the behind the scenes. Uh, so, uh, and, and again, in the, in the early 2000, 2001, you're you have to look at the height uh, or the, the beginning of the, the reality craze, you know, yeah. uh, uh, American culture. We were just so interested in the, in the dirt, you know, yeah. uh, that's, a, know, that's a great point. That's a great point. Going on that's a great point. Yeah. I think TMZ was just now probably getting yeah. their, their footing at that time. And so another, another pioneering thing that Motley can, can claim right. as well. But here's what also what, what I wanted to mention, what else was going on with them at, at the time? And cause because you have to think that at the end of the new tattoo thing, even though it wasn't the failure of the generation swine was, that if, you know, all they knew was what the answer wasn't any new music right now. So they come out with this book. And speaking of trying to stay alive and stay afloat, they were making new music, but they necessarily weren't making new music together. Like I said, Tommy was off doing his 
uh, Methods of Mayhem, Mayhem thing. He made a couple of solo records that were uh, Tommy. I'm sorry, but they were. I don't. He had one called uh, Never a Dull Moment. Uh, it's pretty bad. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, it, and then he came out with this really weird. He wrote two books. Uh, the first chapter of the first book is written in third person from his penis. Because uh, by 2001, his penis was more famous than he was uh, because of the whole the sex video, tape. Right. Yeah. Um, but he came out with another book, an album called Tommy Land, The Ride. Okay, so yeah, like, I that. so now Tommy Lee as theme park. Okay, <laughs> um, speaking of reality TV, um, they they all did it. Vince did yeah. that thing called this, you know, that whole, the surreal that, life, which is you know, of course, the the bottom of the barrel. Uh, desperation. This, it was, and it is, and it was. It was the Dancing with the Stars, which he went on to. All was it Dancing with the Stars, or even was it Skating with the Stars? I I don't remember, but I do remember the surreal life, and it was it was very awkward. It, you know, I was really it was embarrassing. I was embarrassed yeah, for him. I was like, embarrassed uh, for any because anybody that's normally on that show is kind of like, hey, beats beats uh, Waitressen. But right. what was you know what I mean? Tommy Lee wasn't on the drums and now I'm turning on my TV instead of seeing Vince corralling women in a road warrior like looks to kill right. video. He was talking about his uh, facelift on the, on remaking Vince Neal and he's hanging out with the kind yeah. of people that would be on a show called the surreal. Life. I think, I think it was Webster on that show or Manny uh, Lewis. Or Tammy Fade Baker. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't right. know who was on that, that season. But. And then he, and then he, but he also did a reality competition. It was I don't think it was Dancing with the Stars, but they did a very briefly. They did one called Skating with the Scar Stars, like ice skating. I think I mean where you can turn on TV and see Vince Neil ice skating. I want you and I to start one called Shucking Corn with with the uh, with, with the stars <laughs> and get like char- you, you know what I mean, like like the least uh, uh, likely people that you would see right. uh, shucking corn, um, like. Uh, uh, like Orville Redenbach or no. But I go, anyway, um, okay. It, but, All right, and uh, Mick. Well, Mick was out, out, out. I mean, he, in fact, I think Mick was kind of officially retired. He was, Mick suffers from this really horrible disease that he still suffers from. It's a word about as long as my arm. I don't want to right. try to pronounce it called it. It's called like ankylosing. It's like, it's, it's almost like a form of MS where his bones and his back are fusing together right. and it's causing him to literally shrink and bend over into a hunch where standing is, Basically, excruciating, right? Uh, and so he was—he went into seclusion because how do you people, you know, if they're teasing Vince about his weight, can you imagine the the, the indestructible Mick Mars? Yeah, suffering from this disease. And we can get to all that here in a second. But I, uh, but Nikki was actually was making music. He had a band called Fifty Eight. He was making mm-hmm. music with a band called Brides of Destruction and everything else. So if not for the success of the Dirt. That was probably the end of Motley Crue. Okay, Tommy was already out of the band. Mick wasn't able to do anything in, during this period, and then Vince didn't give two shits about tarnishing any sort of legacy. Right. He was trying to find a way to. So, so in my mind, this is very much probably the end of Motley Crue. But then the Dirt comes out. It's wonderful. It's a New York Times bestseller. People are now missing Motley Crue. To the point that uh, you know, it took many, many. It took still took a few years. I mean, you know that like you probably heard of horror stories about how Mick, uh, like I think Nikki, or I think it was either Nikki or Tommy, because Tommy's real close with Mick. 
like finally went over to his house never not seen him for years and he had he looked like an 80 year old man he had had to shave his head through, uh and he was just this this decrepit bitter old guy and just the band was over so but by 2005 i guess all the little solo endeavors and the reality tv shows and they were uh, fielding these Im- Im- amazing offers now. Right. You know, that's funny. Uh, we should probably talk about uh, a story uh, leading up between 2001 and 2005, and I can't remember what year it was, but uh, we have a story where we actually uh, met one of the gang members here uh, on a flight to Vegas. Oh, that's what I was going to lead into, because I, wa- I, I wanted you to tell that story. Okay? So... I'm glad that you mentioned that because what I was going to say was during this little four year, three year thing, whatever, while people weren't knowing what was going on. And to this day, I, you know, I, I saw Mick at NAM convention one time, but the only time we can actually can claim that we met a member of the gang was in 2003. Is it 2003? And I want, okay. I want you to tell that story. Right. So uh, we had decided, you know, my wife and I and you and your girlfriend at the time that we were going to go on a couple's vacation. That's right. Uh, and what we're going to do is we were going to first stop in Vegas for a day, like a, like a couple of days, a day and a half, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then from there, we were going to fly to San Francisco. Uh, so really excited. It was a really fun time. Um, so we are on our way heading to Vegas. Right. Now, at that time, uh, you had worked for American Airlines. I was. Uh, I, was working right. for, I was working for American Airlines while interning at the record label because I'd gotten the job at the airline so that I could fly around uh, to New York or L.A. so I could interview for a better job at a, at, a, at, a, at a label. So I was using these flight benefits because, if you remember, it was you and your wife's anniversary, and this was our gift to you guys That's for, right. your, for your anniversary. And originally, you guys were wanting already already had, had some planning. Mm-hmm. Hey, y'all were going to go to Vegas for, for like five days. But y'all had never been to Vegas, and I was like, you right. don't want to go to Vegas for five days. And, and I'm glad you told us. Of course, <laughs> you don't want to go to San Francisco. Why don't we go to Vegas for just the day? And then, and so my, our gift was was because of the flight benefits. Uh, I was our gift was we were able to fly fly us all first class. And, right, and that's crucial to the story. That it is because we are flying first class. That's right. Uh, Heading to Vegas, and uh, so we're sitting, we're having a blast. You know, we're having a couple complimentary drinks. Just really having fun. So excited yes. that we're on our way to Vegas. Uh, you know, and so you know, usually they have a movie playing, or they'll have the, you know the latest sitcoms uh, right. showing. Um, so we're we're just having fun, but but I, I in the back of my mind, or I, I could hear something. I could hear something in the background. I kept hearing somebody laugh. <laughs> uh, but then I thought to myself, that laugh sounds familiar. Because you would imitate this laugh. That's right. For years. Like, you could do the laugh perfectly. You're hearing that laugh. And, and the only reason why I can recognize this laugh is because of the countless times that we watched Motley Crue uncensored. uncensored. That's right. So... I'd heard this laugh, and I was very familiar with this laugh. As he's coming down the steps of the whorehouse. That's right. So when I hear this laugh, and I have to do this. Yeah. So 
we're having fun. I, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm, you know, looking out the window, but I hear, (laughs) 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 so I hear this laugh and I'm like, I know that laugh from somewhere. So I look back and who do I see watching the, the, the the television, the monitor watching a, a, a sitcom, Vince Neal. Vince Neal on his way also to Vegas, to Las Vegas. And what's funny is because I think, and it, it, it all made sense because I was doing a little detective work. I think that maybe the month before I had heard that he had gotten in trouble, a little bit of uh, uh, trouble with the law. Imagine that. <laughs> right. Uh, some some altercation at, at the Bunny Ranch. So and th- this was just, this was great. So, I you know, obviously I, I, I tap Roy like, Roy, you're not going to believe who is sitting right behind well, us. Let me, let me interject for a second, okay? If you remember, the plane had not yet taken off yet. Okay, we were we were that's right. We we had already had gotten our drinks and stuff. And it's important to those who have flown. You guys know what the bulkhead seat is, meaning that when you sit in that seat where there's nobody in front of you, it's just that wall. Well, Chris and his wife were on the left side of the plane in first class in the bulkhead seat. Okay, me and my girlfriend at the time were on the right side of the plane in first class, but in the last row in first class. Right. We weren't able to get seats together, okay? And, uh, and and if you remember, we had never flown together before, okay? So it never occurred to me to think, well, wait a minute, Chris has never mentioned he was, like, you know, afraid of flying or anything like that. And uh, my girlfriend looks at me and she goes, hey, Chris is coming coming down the aisle here. And you know, we're about to take off here. I mean, I mean, the only reason why you should be coming down the aisle to talk to me is that there was a problem. Okay, right. and you, you have to also understand something. There was a dress code as employees and guests of employees. So you and I were in, you know, we were in suits, and the yeah. girls were in, you know, their Sunday best. And I see you walking down the aisle. I'm already in my mind thinking something's wrong. And then I look up at you, and your eyes are bugging out of your head where you look like the Jim Carrey in the mask. And I'm like, oh, my God, what's what's wrong? Because I didn't hear the laugh because I was so far okay. back, okay? And here you come, and I was like, oh, my God. And I remember I unbuckled my my, my uh, you know my seatbelt, and I stand up, and I go, hey, man, what's wrong? And you go, dude, look who's sitting next to you. Because wasn't he sitting across the aisle from you, right? Yeah, it was like right – was I turned much like maybe a seat back behind me on the other side okay and i was like and you go dude look who's next to me and i was like i was like oh because i was relieved that nothing was wrong right. and i was like oh you know who's in because i've you know working for the airline i flew a thousand times but i never really flew with any celebrities you know what i mean like i saw a couple of wrestlers coming back from some wrestling events and sometimes and uh and uh i was like oh my god who and i look up and it is vince neal <laughs> so Think about this. Okay. Think about this. We can say that we took Motley for, for granted and what would we want from them. But in 2003, when that happened, I was as excited to meet Vince Neal as I would have been to have met anybody. That's true. You know, is the only thing I was just a little worried that he wasn't, he wasn't going to punch one of us. Cause at that point he had a real bad reputation <laughs> for, for, for not being the most fan friendly person in the world. Now, do you remember, though, that Vegas used to do this weird thing where typically since you were in the bulkhead seat, you guys should have been the first off the plane. But Vegas had this, remember, this weird thing where when you got to the jet bridge, the jet bridge actually loaded between first class and coach. Mm -hmm. 
you know, you, you know what I'm saying? So now, since we were in the very last row of first class, we were the first ones off the plane. You see what I'm, you know what I'm saying? Right. Okay. And I remember waiting and we're in our suits. And that's important because now you guys are, are coming behind and here comes Vince. So Vince walks off the plane in Vegas. He'd made headlines about being in trouble. And here are two guys in suits going, Vince Neal. And remember, <laughs> instead of going, oh, you guys must be fans. He goes, <clears throat> um, yes. <laughs> like he thought I was hitting him a subpoena. Right. And that was the only reason why I think he didn't punch us because, or punch me. because I Yeah, just, I think it was a sense of relief. And it was funny because like he was actually really nice. Yes. And I, and I think because it was a sense of relief. But I also remember him kind of laughing at me because I said, I said, man, I was like, this is great. We're celebrating their marriage and our friendship. And this is like our first big vacation. I said, you know, you guys were the, you know, I, the typical fan shit. Yeah. Like, you guys were the soundtrack to our lives kind right. of thing. And he was just like, and then I heard the laugh. He's like, thanks, buddy. And I think, and I'm not an autograph picture person. We didn't. Uh, do that. Maybe, maybe if it was 2009 when all the phones had cameras on them, maybe we would have. But, uh, but I, I actually have my boarding pass. If you remember from mm-hmm. that, I have it signed by Vince Neil, and oh. I have it. Not an autograph person, but I love that story so much because it's just a great story unto itself. Right. But that you, we were members of the gang, and now we were on right, the yeah. plane with the leader of the gang, right. so to speak. Whatever. And to this day, one of my favorite memories, and I have told that story all over the world to, to you know, <laughs> in terms of like touring and stuff. Uh, and that was because I, mean, I was so proud that, I, you know, we, that we, you know, that we were doing this anyway, that I was able to make this happen. And and uh, and then to make it special, Vince That's Neal, cool. yeah, the leader, so the leader of the gang, just hearing him laugh the whole way. Yeah. You know, Every, to the, and think about it that by this time. You know, Motley was all but over. And if it hadn't been for that book, uh, The Dirt, uh, I really believe that would have that would have most likely have been the end. I mean, they were all pursuing different things. Tommy wasn't even in the band, um, you know, because they weren't getting they weren't getting the offers uh, and that would come later. So I think that's probably uh, a good a good place to to kind of pause uh, for this episode. But I wanted to say this before we go was that think about that. Think about if it hadn't been for that, that it allowed for another 15 years of their career. Think about that. Think about if it had ended in 2002 or uh, three around that time. Uh, 15 years is a long time. Think about it. 81 to 96. That's the entire span of their 80s output, even past the Karabi era. I mean, think about that. You know, uh, sometimes I, I I think about that in terms of you know time and, and distance. Like it's weird to think that uh, you know whenever they were at the American Music Awards, like we mentioned, the you know the girls, girls, girls was only the first time I saw them was only ten years before that. Whereas when I go back and, and when I think about that, I think about that being later in their career. No, that was still in the first half there. So it allowed them to you know to stick around for fifteen more years, which is great. So join us again next week for the third and final chapter uh, for now of our Motley Crue uh, Odyssey here, where we've had so much fun taking you through all of it. Like I said, take a day, take take one of your, your, your an old friend, a new friend, uh, spend a day uh, 
you know, enjoying the catalog that is Motley Crue or whatever that you're into, what's, whatever has inspired you like this. Um, part three, we're probably going to expound a little bit more on the dirt, of course, and talk about the movie. Um, and we're going to walk you through so much more because there was so much more. There were 15 more years. Uh, we're going to walk you through the Carnival of Sins tour. Uh, I got a great story about the Houston date on that. Um, what became their final album, uh, but not their final recording. Um, and of course, obviously, the uh, the final tour and then those final dates in Los Angeles. So come on back uh, and join us. Uh, what I want to leave you here with is what we were talking about a little bit earlier, which I think kind of really kind of frames everything, was when Vince came back into the band right before Generation Swan was released. It, it'll, it'll, you'll be amazed at how young and hungry and awesome he looks. Um, here's You'll be able to hear the audio of it, but I want you to go on YouTube or wherever you can do it and just type in Motley Crue, the American Music Awards 1997. It will really give you some great perspective, and uh, it's something I, I hope that you'll, that you'll check out. But here's the audio version of it. So anyway, for... Uh, my co-host and uh, lifelong best friend, Chris Todd, we thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, come on back. We'll see you next week for part three. Any specific genre, format, or category. Their music typifies everything that is wild, unpredictable, uninhibited, outrageous, dangerous, and fun about rock and roll. They're back. Tommy Lee, Nikki Six, Nick Mars, and Vince Neil. Ladies and gentlemen.